Morning, Dan. Rob, how you doing? I'm awesome. How are you? Okay. I want you, you know, in the spirit of an MVP and us always trying to iterate and learn and test and learn, try this on for size. Ready? Ready. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Art of the Possible. This is the marketing guy, Dan Morrison, along with the technology guy, Rob Page. We talk about what's possible in customer experience, customer engagement, marketing, branding, technology, society, culture, maybe politics. Let's go. What do we think? Well, you're not going to get rich as a record producer. Well, I know, but you know, so, there's a few. So, bank robber, what was the other thing you failed at? Bank <laughs> robber, start, and start up, you know, start a bunch more. Thank you for opening that wound. I really yeah. appreciate no, that. No, the, uh, I mean, I'm not a fan. Okay. Well, I, I picked the sound off of the eight bit, like little avatars that we do, kind of an 80s homage, but we can go back to the drawing board on that one. Um, so, what do we got today? We are excited. We are excited today. We're excited. Right? This is a this it's is a, a first. first. It's a first. Yes, yes. We clearly hang out too much. We we say each other's words. Right. Um, we have a guest today. Uh, we're excited to have uh, Michael Slaby. He is the author of a new book called "For All the People: Redeeming the Broken Promises of Modern Media and Reclaiming Our Civic Life." This drops, I believe, on Tuesday, February twenty third, which. I think it's yesterday, according to all the listeners. So uh, this will be an early preview for everybody. So with no further ado, I'd like to introduce Michael Slaby. Michael, how are you, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me this morning. Well, it's it's good to see you because I can see you on Zoom. It's good to hear you for everybody else. Um, We're excited to have you. Uh, We thank you for the advanced copy. Uh, Try to get you're welcome. Yeah, thanks for thanks for making time to read it. Yeah, I kind of try to get through as most of it as possible. I got through most of it, skimmed all of it. Uh, Rob, I'm sure probably you know flunked and failed on his homework. Um, but uh, Rob, no, but I, least, I, I, I read page I because and then I, my eyes got tired. No, oh. <laughs> I, I actually, I actually read the whole thing. Actually, I skipped to the end where the good stuff is, and I, and we're going to talk about where's my damn jetpack. Uh, but the, uh, I feel, I feel honored in that this is like the first time I've ever gotten a pre-read of a book other than yours, Dan. Right. Yeah. And this, and, and Michael's was way better. Yeah. Well, yeah, mine was a, a, a crappy dime store novel and, and Michael actually has something of substance. So that's, right, that's really right. nice. So I, I can't wait to talk about it. This is such a compelling and timely, I mean, timeliness. I mean, if it was like a week earlier, it would have been perfect, but as it is, it's 99.9. So <laughs> So, Michael, uh, so uh, quick intro. I know uh, I'll let you do it. You're kind of brief intro who you are, and then uh, we can ask you some questions about this great piece of work. Oh, God, I got to do my own bio. Well, Um, you're the quick one. Like, we don't want to bore people. Uh, Yeah, look, I've spent most of my career working in uh, campaign politics. I I was part of the sort of digital technology and analytics group for the Obama campaigns in 8 and 12. Um, I've spent the last few years focused on uh, the effects of media on society broadly, working at a nonprofit in New York City called Harmony Labs. Wait, you left out a really lot of stuff. You're a very humble guy. So you guys definitely go on to uh, Google, Google Michael and, and see him on LinkedIn. Uh, just uh, we're you know really honored to have you on today. But my first question, Michael, is what does it feel like to be the second best author in your household? 
Uh, I'm pretty used to being second best in my household. I like, like all the advice I give most uh, people is marry up if you can, and then hold on for dear life. Uh, and, and that's pretty much the story of uh, my long uh, relationship with my wife that began in high school. Um, so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm quite happy being the second best author in my house. Yeah. So, so Lydia wrote, uh, wait, it gets worse. Uh, it was a pretty phenomenal book about her experience uh, with, uh, cancer, but also I think broadening that frame to her dealing, being a control freak in that situation in life and learning through that experience. Yeah. Cancer was sort of the journey, but it's really a story about sort of transformation and, and knowing yourself and, and understanding yourself clearly and, and understanding what you want and which voices in your head to listen to and a bunch of other things. It's a really amazing story. Who came up with the title? Uh, I think that that ended up coming from uh, sort of a banter with her editor. Cause it talk about provocative, right? It's yeah. that's, that's not the, uh, you know, success religion, right? It's way, I love it. I love it. So the question is, Michael, it, when Lydia wrote her book, she didn't let you really read it until the end. So it was that your approach. Was that your payback or did you kind of bring her into the process a little sooner? Um, I, I was really curious to read her book because obviously, uh, it's deeply personal and there's a lot of our marriage in there. Uh, and there's a whole chapter called Michael. Um, <laughs> I don't know that she's still read my book. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, b- back to the sort of being the second best author. I think she's uh, she's given me lots of space to write this year, uh, which has been a gift. Um, uh, time and quiet and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, she 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 has heard me. You know, I've been working on this book for a long time. I mean, Rob, you talked about timeliness, and I think it's sort of evidence that it's better to be lucky than good in a lot of ways. Uh, I started working on this book in 2013 and um, immediately after the, the reelect campaign. And I, I think if I'd published this in 2015, when I sort of thought it was going to come out, I don't know if anybody would have read it. And I still don't know if anybody's going to read it this time, but it just, it feels much more of this moment than that moment uh, in, in a lot of ways. So I'm well, excited about that. Two people have read it. I know my mom's going to read it. So I know three people right. are going to read this. Three. Book. Okay. Nailed it. Um, so, hey, so give us the, um, you know, give us the quick highline on what it's about. And then I really want to know um, why you wrote this book. Sure. Um, look, ultimately it's my contribution to a conversation that's become um, almost an emergency around how the the systems we rely on for storytelling and information are undermining our civic life and our social life and community and the sort of the fabric of American democracy. And that's a big mouthful, but but what we realize is that in a system of self-government, our ability to understand the world around us and and communicate with other people is sort of fundamental to our capacity to um, remain an effective community with each other at a very basic level. And when those systems are not optimized for our civic life, they're not optimized for public discourse. They're not optimized to help us understand the world. They're optimized along other dimensions. We're in trouble. We're relying on largely commercial, largely private systems for very, very essential public goods. And we're not getting what we need from them. And ultimately, you know, I believe that we can 
right? Uh, Rob sort of referenced the jetpacks joke, uh, which is which is the the name of the the introduction. We were promised jetpacks, um, but we were given cat videos and a whole <laughs> bunch of ads. Uh, but we can have the jetpacks if we sort of reframe what's driving and guiding these systems. Like these the systems that we rely on were designed by people, and they're not broken. They are working as they were designed for the benefit of their designers. And so they can be redesigned. And that just, it requires a lot of will and a lot of work to redeclare what it is we need from these things and how we want society to function. The, the, the idea, the sort of original, early, possibly naive sort of cyber utopian idea that greater connectivity was just going to inherently and implicitly lead to greater plurality and healthier Western liberal democracy. Um, the, the problem with that sentence is that we believe that those were implicit outcomes. Yeah. Let me, make, but then make because, yeah let me read that part. Let me read that. I actually sure. have that right here, Michael. So yeah. we left our most important needs and desires surrounding how a new architecture of information would reshape society to be implicit assumptions and the inevitability of greater connectivity, greater diversity of voice, and greater disruption of access and power. Without explicit direction, commercial interests have optimized modern media for profit, not for civic life or human progress, and our civic life is collapsing under the weight of exploitation. Okay. So I, but but um, we, we did realize some of the benefit. I mean, just in the small... Sure. Wikipedia is one of those examples. The Common Voice, uh, you know, still not citable by my high school freshman for its um, jankiness, but it's a collection of wisdom. <laughs> I wonder. I hope you comment today on the. There was a turn, and I, and by the way, I totally agree that this stuff is broken. But there was a turn when when major social media. Let's just instead of dancing around that. So when Facebook started, it was a commercial endeavor and people, people did not fully um, bring to consciousness the trade of the fact that it was free with the fact that if you're not paying for it, you are what is being sold. That trade is over the waterfall. I'm not sure we can get that water back up or the horse back in the barn, so to speak. So do we need a fundamentally different platform that is operated by for social good? Because Facebook is, is a, you know, humongous publicly traded corporation with obligations to shareholders and stakeholders. Uh, they are. And, and I, I think, you know, one of the you talked about sort of the sort of profit motive and the sort of commercialization engine. I think it was like, was there a moment? And the moment was when they started trying to make money. That's that's when things started to shift. And for the first few years, Facebook wasn't making a lot of money, right? Like you know, they were they were they were a commercial entity from the beginning, but it, it was really when we see sort of the the advertising and and sort of the algorithm of sort of optimizing for engagement in service of creating the most ad inventory possible, meaning maintaining our attention at all costs, that we start to see. The, the sort of shift in what we see on Facebook driving us toward outrage and driving us toward sort of confirmation bias and starting to break down 
even what it seemed like Facebook was was originally for, which was maintaining relationships at a distance. And so, that feels like something we need. It, it is. And so I, I guess, I, is it is it just the other side of the coin and you can't split the coin because if you split the coin, there's still the other side of the coin? Well, business models can change. Economics can change, right? The, the, the idea that there's only one way to make money online and it's advertising or bust is... Silly. Sure. It's a ridiculous yeah. idea. And, and that's not what you're suggesting. Like, but the, the idea that it is be the product, uh, sort of sign up for our own exploitation by trading our privacy for free services, just because that's how a lot of these systems work does not mean that's how they have to work. Uh, and it is possible to make money in other ways. Also, I don't think I don't consider it my responsibility to solve Facebook's business problem. Right. They will figure this out. They are smart people. They don't get to, I say this in my book, they don't get to stand up and proclaim to be the smartest people on the fucking planet and then say these problems are too hard to solve. Like you can't have it both ways. Right. Well, I think, I think that gets to a crux of a lot of this ongoing conversation Rob and I have had on this podcast and in, in life is so where, where does the responsibility lie or like what can be done? I think you, we've mentioned two things. One is, we got to look at the business model and be like, listen, like, what are we going to do? Uh, whether that, or let's call it an organizational model, like, cause it could be a business model or a public service model, et cetera. And then also the algorithms themselves, like literally what is the logic behind the algorithms that's then literally put down into code by which to drive the business. And so, you know, the answer, the answer ultimately is both and for most of these questions. There, there isn't a single lever that is going to clean all this up for us. There is, There are changes around the design of the systems themselves that include things like algorithmic transparency and greater distinguishability of content, getting away from the sort of like infinite scrolling streams that are sort of designed to keep us feeling like we're never complete and that we're going to miss something. They're designed to be addictive. Um, and they are, um, uh, you know, so there, there are technical and sort of design considerations that go down to love the level of UI, some of which are really simple. Um, some of which are super complicated and I'm not suggesting that like, these are easy problems for these technology companies to solve either. Some of them are quite hard. Um, I just don't think that's a reason not to try. I think there are institutional and economic pressures. I think there's regulatory environment. Uh, regulatory innovation that's needed. And I think our own behavior needs to get better. We need to understand these systems better and understand the trade-offs we're making better and get more. One of the, I, I, I sort of couldn't resist the sort of constant echo of Spider-Man in the book of with great power comes great responsibility because it is one of the shifts in the architecture from a channels to a graph is that we have more power in the system. We're just not that great at using it. So describe, you talk about the graph uh, in the sure. book. To describe the graph in simple terms so uh, we can understand it. So I think the, I, I start from the premise that one of the reasons why we feel so lost in our current storytelling and media environment is that the basic architecture and assumptions that we have had up until about you know a decade or so ago um, were of a channel-based world where a publisher who wants to tell a story uses a media channel to reach an audience. And it's a pretty linear, pretty fixed, very hierarchical sort of view of communications flowing and mostly in one direction. 
And what happens as what happened to to that as social media platforms became sort of dominant and and started to knit back the fragmented features of those channels over the course of the last decade or so is that we live in an architecture where every participant in the system, whether it's the company or us as individuals, are all capable of producing, distributing, sharing, and consuming content. That we are in a in an architecture where our roles are not fixed, where the direction and flow of content is not fixed, and where this sort of interconnection between relationships, between different sort of paths of content, content doesn't stay where it's put. It's sort of infinitely shareable and movable. All these has all these really big consequences for how we assume information flows and how we understand what we're consuming. And God One save the, us all because Rob and I just joined that fray. <laughs> but this is part of the, you know, the power that I'm talking about is you guys just had an idea for a story and a set of conversations you wanted to tell and now you're telling them. You didn't there there wasn't the same the same gatekeepers that sort of kept that organized the old system uh are largely disempowered. They're not gone and there's a lot of there's still a lot of hierarchy and and sort of unbound unbalanced power in our current media systems, but it's very, very different. And the, the limits to access and the limits to who's allowed to tell stories have changed a lot and changed for the better in, in general. But Michael, the so I used to provide technology to that older world. And it seems like back then it was it was biased, but not polarized. Don't you think that what is the human psychological condition that causes us I mean, is it just the, the the search for confirmation bias? Because people, I think that is at least half to blame. Yes, all this technology makes it easy to indulge your desire for confirmation bias. Sure. I, I think confirmation bias is, is ultimately a substitute. When, when we aren't sure what to trust, when we aren't sure what is credible and what is authoritative, we start, we start substituting other things for authority and credibility. And one of the things that we used to get from the gatekeepers was an assumption about what was credible. Now, those gatekeepers also largely reinforced a sort of white male hegemony about media and information and what was important. They excluded lots of voices from the process. And, and when they broke down, it allowed for the emergence of more voices and some of these other things, but it took with it this sort of stable idea of what was credible even if that was flawed, it gave us a sort of frame of reference for how to interpret and how to consume. And one of the things we haven't replaced in the in the graph that we live in is a good good markers, good labeling for what is credible and what is authoritative. And since we are overwhelmed by more content, we live in a in a constant state of cognitive overload. We need shortcuts, and one of the shortcuts that is most comfortable for us is confirmation bias. So if it reinforces something I already believe it must be true is an easy way for us to sort of start sorting and making sense of the information that we're given. That, you know, people crave comfort is something that, you know, I think is sort of psychologically true and and it is cognitively and psychologically sort of more expensive to be constantly confronted by the unfamiliar or the challenging. Uh, and so creating interfaces where where 
that are sort of designed to be brave. They're designed to make unfamiliar, the unfamiliar sort of giving us opportunities to engage with the unfamiliar in ways that un enable us to sort of stay open is part of what we need from these systems. That's harder. I'm not saying it's not harder. I'm just saying it's what we need. To totally. And one question. Do you think there is such a thing as a universally accepted fact? Um, fact. So I think the answer to that question is universally accepted. Are there people that don't believe in gravity? I guess there probably are. So, 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 you know, maybe and universally and accepted is impossible, right? Just sort of as an intellectual exercise. Um, but I, but I, but I do think that there are, you know, sort of, if truth is about the adherence to fact, facts are things that are true. It's a little circular, whether we believe in them or not. Um, uh, you know, I think you know there 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 are there are plenty of facts for us to rely on. So let me I ask think, let me ask you this question: It's how did we get to the notion that landing on the moon was done in Hollywood? I mean, conspiracy theory is not like not new, right? And sort of the idea that like people no, but, sort no, of no, are, but we seem to have a, the Dewey Decimal System of conspiracy theories now, where growing up. Maybe it was, you know, Kennedy was, a, was you know, shot by someone other than who we thought. I mean, you know what I mean? It just seemed to be much more rare. Range. And now Range. everyone has their pet conspiracy theory. Yeah. I, I mean, I, there, there are pet conspiracy theories in my homeowners association. <laughs> sure. I'm I not even joking. Conspiracy theories. But I think like one, like one perspective on that too, though, and kind of, you know, reflecting on Michael's book is – the conspiracy theories now are actually in, you know, they'll show up in media, right. And they'll be kind of be reinforced and maybe they won't say whether or not they're true or not, but they'll give voice to these conspiracies. And my, theories, and my point helps a lot of that fire. If you are under a credible looking masthead, which means Correct. you've, you've spent 10 hours in learning Photoshop, you Correct. get the imprimatur of fancy graphics. And now you're like, yeah. damn, maybe the moon thing was fake. Uh, and look, I, think I think that's what you're that's, speaking we're taking to, on water there. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think what the, what that speaks to is the idea that misinformation and disinformation are not new, but they are more effective and easier in the systems that we're currently relying on. Well, and I, let's so let's take this to the like let's take this to the outcome, and it, which is actually the beginning of your book. And you have this quote here that says, "We become citizens of multiple Americas with only shared geography." Right, and this is kind of in that section where you do talk about stories, storytelling, and how, you know, we we're reached a point now where there's multiple stories being told and the overlap between those stories is getting further and further apart. Yeah. And, and th this part of the, the sort of introductions or bringing in why storytelling is so important sort of leans heavily on sort of Yuval Harari's view of the world from Sapiens. If people haven't read it, I, I highly recommend it. Um, this sort of idea that storytelling and fiction is kind of humans superpower um, that our ability to sort of generate stories about things that are, that are made up is actually part of what allows us to sort of organize at mass at a mass scale. Right. And, and when I say stories, I mean, things like America, the idea of America, it's not a naturally occurring phenomenon like gravity, for instance, we just referred to, it is a thing that we have all decided means something, but the idea of a nation state is an idea is a story. It is a 
social construction, a narrative about sort of the organization of people in the world. And if we don't agree to what those to those to the nature of those stories, then it's hard for us to continue to remain in a shared community, right? And what I mean by the sort of, you know, this speaks to what Rob was asking about confirmation bias and sort of what Eli Pariser talks about when he talks about filter bubbles is the more we live in a in a narrow world where where we are defining our stories about the world around us only by small group in groups and everybody else is an out group and is is dangerous in some way or another we can have you know completely different ideas about the nature of what does it mean to be america amongst citizens of ostensibly the same country and i think we've always had this like i think you know we think back there's been a debate about whether america was too big and too diverse to be a democracy since the founders and the founders were only talking about the diversity within landed white men and they thought the diversity amongst the white men was too great potentially too great much less starting to include all of the actual humans that comprise this country and so there is a there is a challenge around building a holistic idea and a story that can it can in fact be inclusive of everyone in the country and i think we're seeing the tension and the challenge of that right now um the idea around sort of the rise or sort of the appeal of conspiracy and misinformation i think this is where we get into sort of one of the consequences of sort of the indistinguishability of content and the lack of good markers for things like credibility is that conspiracy theories give us something like the, the the people who buy into conspiracy theories are not like crazy or stupid um they, they may also be crazy and stupid but it's like disconnected from that that's like not related to whether or not they've been written the conspiracy theories give us a way of understanding a world that doesn't make sense they but is give that us but a is sense that of belonging but is that responsible and people are craving that are are you is it, is this a is there a component of personal responsibility to For sure. take take into so this this podcast is are the possible let's let's so these challenges are are um, profound like I, right and I could go on like I could have this conversation for days with you um, maybe not so much Dan but because he's he's probably running out of things to say at this point I uh, said so the, the, there's the big words here are putting me to sleep I, I know like kind I know. of shorten it up a little bit I'm slacking you all the definitions so <laughs> so are the possible. How do, so sketch sketch for us and we'll riff. What does the organization technology and interface that could be sustainable just as a thought experiment? What does that look like in your mind? Um, I don't think it's a single thing. Again, I don't think it's a single thing. I, what I think we need from you know systems like Facebook is in the same way that they are currently optimized for sort of outrage and confirmation bias as a way of maintaining the most inventory possible. They, those algorithms could be tuned to reveal to us blind spots in our thinking. They could be tuned very easily to reveal to us shared beliefs amongst communities that seem very different from us, along with some of those differences presented in a way that allows us to engage with them 
in a, it, on a basis that's not about fear or othering. These are totally possible. Those are just interface choices. And those choices, the question about this is, will they make those choices? And to your point early, Facebook is a publicly traded company with fiduciary responsibilities to shareholders. Unless they become a B Corp, not maximizing for profit is a problem for them, right? Like somebody, some shareholder is going to sue them. So what might be required and I think is needed as a society is for us to declare publicly, explicitly what we need and want from these things. And that public declaration of principles and values needs to get codified in new regulation. That creates some lanes and some definitions about what it means to support public discourse. What does it mean to take into account whether they wanted the responsibility for, for it or not, that these platforms comprise the public sphere that we rely on for self-government. And because they do, they have certain responsibilities. And that's how we start to create constraints that they design against differently than their own commercial and private and, and private and profit interests that they can start designing against other principles and other requirements that include not substitute. I'm not saying they can't make money. They may make less money. I don't know. They may make more money. I'm not sure necessarily what the outcome will be, but again, I don't consider it my responsibility to solve their business problem. So I think this creates an environment in which they can start to design and optimize to include the public goods that we need from them in the way they think about their systems. To your point about personal responsibility, this also demands that we become better consumers of information, that we, we need help with that, right? We need help from the interfaces, but ultimately, I don't want Facebook to decide for me what is in bounds and out of bounds. I want them to mark for me what is in bounds and out of bounds and let me have more choice. Right now, we believe we live in a world of infinite choices. There's more content than we've ever seen. But so many of those decisions are made for us. They're made for us by sort of recommendation engines and, and stream algorithms and all these other pieces. And those choices are opaque. We don't see those choices even getting made. And, and one of the, the problems with that is choosing matters. It, it, the example I usually use for this is- No, no nothing but choosing matters because that's the principal inspiration for these selection algos. We, yeah, and, we, and us not making those choices affects our understanding of the world. So if I turn on my TV and I look at the TV guide and like I, I watch almost no television news for lots of reasons, but if I'm going to turn it on, I'm probably going to pick CNN. I might pick MSNBC. I'm probably not going to pick Fox News, although I intentionally watch Fox News or read Fox News to try to help understand a broader set of opinion and sort of understand what people who don't think like me are, are seeing and consuming. But let's say I just, I, I literally, every single day I go on the TV guide and I hit CNN and I don't hit Fox News. That's a very different experience than if I go on my TV guide and Fox News is not a choice because they have realized I'm not going to pick that. So they just take the choice away from me. There's two things in that. There is a cognitive load to making the decision, right? So it may be that we, we actually appreciate the lack of friction of fewer choices, but not choosing over time starts to make me think that the Overton window is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And it is only what I think and believe 
And the Overton window, instead of being a tool for like a like a debate, becomes a weapon for exclusion. And that's where we that's very close to where we are when we live in a world of apparent choice, but not actual choice. Where in this calculus do you think um, the notion that news has not is lost is stopped being content and is now entertainment? Where where is that? That started a long time ago. Um, I think that that really started. News is a news is a complicated concept. It's always always has been. Uh, you know, in the 18th century, when the first newspapers sprung up in the United States, they were owned by political parties. They were deeply, fundamentally partisan documents. Um, and but they were they were obvious about that bias. That bias was clear to the people consuming the information. So we knew how to consume what we were hearing. And then, you know, uh, over the course of a, a few generations and a couple of centuries, sort of codified, and this was largely the result of the Columbia School of Journalism in the early 20th century, the sort of set of principles around like unbiased journalism and independence and all these other pieces that are sort of at the foundation of how we think about journalism now, but don't really work well. And, and the pressure on them not working well started with 24-hour television news in the 80s um, and the sort of deregulation of things like the Fairness Doctrine and some other stuff. And what happened is over time, the idea of news has been sort of come to encompass more and more and more types of content. Um, Analysis and commentary are valid, important parts of journalism, but they're only one piece. And the definition of news is something that we probably need to reclaim. Like what happened? Well, not what you think about what happened, not what you want me to think about what happened, but actually what happened. The BBC is probably the closest to news anymore. You you could easily use it as a as a sleep drug, but yeah, maybe. And and, and so I think distinct, again, we're talking about distinguish. Like, can you tell me that is what you're trying to tell me what happened or is what you're trying to tell me your opinion about what happened? And one of the problems you talk about sort of news as entertainment, when you're on camera all damn day, mostly you're going to end up with commentary because it's just, you can talk forever. Right, like we're we no. Just this is it. you and this I, weather right? channel. Look at the weather channel. It's thirty eight. Okay, but now I've got to ha- I got to fill in twenty nine more minutes. Now you got to say something else. <laughs> so what if the interface for for the news channel was five minutes at the beginning of every hour, and then like a color bars, and you if you want to turn to like the the infinite loop of partisan commentary, that's on the other channel. Yeah. There's a, there, there's a shift like what if the yeah. what if there was an idea that like we actually were informed and we could stop watching like i know everything i need to know for right now that concept does not exist in our current information landscape yeah. the idea of being complete is completely anathema to all of the economics of all of these systems yeah and going back to the bbc comment too like we think the bbc is maybe the most neutral because they're a little dispassionate, right? Like they're reporting well, that, on a maybe that's the trick. Well, maybe right? that's the trick. Is that you could you could probably have um, share a conspiracy theory in a dispassionate way and feel very BBC ish. Therefore, accumulate credibility that to which you're not, you know, uh, sure. it doesn't warrant it. All right. Yeah. Well, hey, this has but, been. But a- I think the conspiracy theory thing. I want to come back to this one more time. Is yeah. I I do think. It, we have to be really careful. And I think watching this sort of analysis around the QAnon phenomenon has 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 brought this into relief. And a lot of people have pushed back on the like, 
these people are crazy and stupid sort of narrative for good reason, because I think that, Rob, you're talking about sort of conspiracy theory being more prevalent. And I think partially that's a function of misinformation is easier and spreads more in our current landscape. But I also think it reflects a lack of belonging and a sort of sense of isolation, especially during the pandemic. Not only, not only do we feel isolated, but now for valid public health reasons, we are being told that other people are dangerous. And so the idea of an in-group and out-group is being reinforced by public health requirements and making us even more susceptible to us versus them narratives and even more susceptible to, please God, give me, I don't care how crazy it is. If it sounds even the least bit reasonable, and that's the trick with conspiracy theories is they're like pseudoscience. They sound reasonable. They're not, they're not grounded in fact, but they play on our idea that please God, give me an explanation for this. And you combine that with all these social pressures of isolation and uh, sort of fear around the pandemic. And it's sort of like the perfect storm of driving people into a sort of desperate search for belonging and safety. And conspiracy theory is good for that. It's not that it's, it's ultimately dangerous for all kinds of reasons, but this speaks to an inability of our other institutions, whether that's government, whether that's political parties to, to provide a narrative that gives us the same sense of belonging and comfort and safety and vision for the future. And those institutions are responsible for this too. Yeah. All right. Well, let me, let me cap this conversation with Michael, your words again. Right. So you oh, say, gosh. yeah, right. Um, this is from an eighth grade uh, essay that you wrote that Lydia sent me. No joking, but that would have been awesome. I should have thought ahead, um, but we can take it back. If we can make these implicit principles, explicit requirements of redesigning platforms and restoring institutions, then we, the people can reclaim the power we hold and the, as the most numerous type of node in the graph, if we are prepared to lead confidently in the direction of a moral public sphere meant to challenge and uplift us, then we all still can have jetpacks. So, um, everybody gets jetpacks on I, Friday. I want Boom. my stinking jetpack. This is an airing on Friday. So <laughs> jetpack Friday, but. Um, so, Michael, that phenomenal conversation. Um, any kind of final, you know, final capper that you want to share? When is uh, your book? Appreciate, I appreciate the chance to like have this conversation. I, I, I think it's important to recognize that this conversation has been going on for a long time. And this book is my contribution to a conversation we really, really need to have. And I and so I'm always eager to bring this my perspective and this conversation into the broader conversation. So I'm, I'm just grateful to get the chance to talk to you guys this morning. When, when is your book available? How do people get it? It is available uh, on Tuesday, February 23rd. So I believe it's out now that this is, uh, it is out and available now that this is airing. Uh, you can get it anywhere you buy books. You should be able to find it in your local bookstore. Um, you can find it on bookstore.org, bookshop.org, and you can find it on Amazon. Awesome. And when, when's the uh, Audible coming out? As soon as I finish recording it. All right. Well, oh, that. in, probably, in the pro- author's probably, voice. I love pro- it. Pro- the audiobook will probably be out in early April. Got it. Wonderful. Uh, Rob, any last thoughts? No, I have just deeply enjoyed this. I would actually love for you to maybe speak to some other folks that with whom I'm associated. and Let's do it. Follow-up conversation. 
Uh, Zuckerberg said this, and you know, of course, he's wound up in Facebook. But can you were talking about a regulatory change? Can our can our current legislative mechanisms regulate something they don't understand? Um, yes or no, and then that's another episode. Can so the, the our current legislative mechanisms can regulate this? They have no the power one can to regulate something they don't understand. Okay, there you go. And so and and there's do you know there's one engineer in Congress. This is watching Zuckerberg testify in front of Congress is incredibly painful. Watching him have to say out loud, "We sell ads. That's how we make money." is just fucking terrifying. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Episode N plus four. We got to get back to that because I think that's Let's another issue. Yeah. Awesome. No. The lack of leadership and the inability to to grok what what is being what what we're wrestling with is is a huge part of the problem. Awesome. Thanks again, Michael. Dan, take us away. All right. Well, hey, thanks, Michael. We are going to do a book talk with you. Um, so we'll, we'll make sure the listeners kind of know about that, where maybe they can kind of participate, ask you some questions as well. So we'll get that scheduled up. Um, thank you for so much for your time. Give our best to Lydia. It's a fantastic book. Congratulations. I enjoyed every word of it that I understood. Thanks, brother. And uh, um, yeah, me too. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks, everybody. This is Art of the Possible. And as you go on for the next week, think what is possible. I don't know. We think Rob's that a good, can we clean that up a little bit? Is that a good, like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Michael.